Welcome to episode 36 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast, or as it will be known henceforth, the Becky Pringle Appreciation Hour. I know it's only been a few days since my last episode, but frankly, I was just too excited to sit on this one. On Friday afternoon last, I saw a video of a woman named Becky Pringle, whose speech to the most recent conference held by the National Education Association is one of the funniest things I've ever heard. And I just had to share it. So here goes for your delectation and delight. Here is the peroration of Becky Pringle's extraordinary address. I can hear Chief Seattle crying out to us, urging us to remember when you know who you are, when your mission is clear and you burn with the inner fire of an unbreakable will. No cold can touch your heart. No deluge can dampen your purpose. And yay, you are those stars in the darkness. Your light will not be dimmed. Your purpose will drive you in a righteous fight for freedom because you know who you are. That's right. Yes. You know who you are. You are the NEA. Our mission is clear. We will advocate for the rights of education professionals and we will change this world for our students with that inner fire burning. We will never bend. We will never be broken because we are the NEA and we will always, always do what we must to be worthy of our students. Thank you, NEA, for all you do every day for our babies and for our colleagues and for your states and for this country. Onward, NEA. Onward. So in case you're wondering, this isn't a bit. That's a real excerpt of a real speech made by a real woman named Becky Pringle performed before the real NEA conference. And it is just a work of art. It has so many incredible moments that it's hard to process them all in such a short span of time. Since I discovered it, courtesy of Jack Crow at National Review, I've seen the speech compared to the one that Dwight Schrute gives in the office when he accepts Northeastern Pennsylvania Salesman of the Year. But in my estimation, Becky Pringle's work exceeds that in every conceivable way. Dwight Schrute was quoting Mussolini. Becky Pringle's doing it all on her own. So before we get to my guest today, I thought I would break down my favorite parts of the Becky Pringle speech. Here's one of them. When your mission is clear and you burn with the inner fire of an unbreakable will, no cold can touch your heart. No deluge can dampen your purpose. And yay, you are those stars in the darkness. I think that probably sounds better in the original German. But only just. As a rule, if you find yourself writing the words, when your mission is clear and you burn with the inner fire of an unbreakable will and you're not gearing up to invade Western Europe, you probably 
need to go outside for a while. Here's another terrific bit. Your purpose will drive you in a righteous fight for freedom because you know who you are. Note the modulation on the word R. It's almost piratical. R. You know who you are. Jim lad, fetch us some grog. And then, just to highlight the sophistication of this speech, we get some bathos. Bathos is defined as an unintentional lapse in mood from the sublime to the trivial or the ridiculous. And there we are, right in the middle of knowing who we are and being immune to the dampness caused by deluges and having a clear mission and all that. And suddenly, it's revealed that the speech is actually about education professionals. You know who you are! You are the NEA! Our mission is clear! We will advocate for the rights of education professionals! Really? We will advocate for the rights of education professionals? That's the topic here? All that sturm and drang? Education professionals' rights advocacy? Why not marginally improve toaster safety or a 3% increase in the brightness of street lighting? Here's some more bathos. With that inner fire burning, we will never bend. We will never be broken because we are the NEA. And we will always, always do what we must. I've just realized who Becky Pringle is. She's Roderick Spode, the amateur dictator from P.G. Woodhouse's Jeeves and Worcester novels, who dresses up like Hitler and shakes his fist, but is actually concerned with things like the non-importation of root vegetables. Here's a clip. Brother Black Shorts, as I stand before you tonight, we are on the brink of victory! Our policies are clear, our policies are just, our policies are fully laid out in my book with the England price fee and sixpence from all good booksellers. Our policies are, one, the right, nay, the duty of every free-born Englishman to grow his own potatoes. <laughs> two, an immediate ban on the import of foreign root vegetables into the United Kingdom. scientific measurement of all adult male knees. I've been trying to work out why Becky Pringle is so funny, and I can think of no better way to illustrate it than to conclude with a comparison between Pringle talking about being a member of a well-connected and well-funded teachers' union and Winston Churchill talking about the impending end of the world at the hands of the worst tyranny that has ever existed. Here's Churchill talking about the existential threat posed by Hitler. Sir, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home to ride out the storm of war and to outlive the menace of tyranny if necessary for years, if necessary alone. At any rate, that is what we are going to try to do. That is the resolve of His Majesty's government, every man of them. That is the will of Parliament and the nation, the British Empire and the French Republic linked together in their cause and in their need will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. 
We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And here's Becky Pringle talking about being in a union in 2023. No cold can touch your heart. No deluge can dampen your purpose. And yay, you are those stars in the darkness. Your light will not be dimmed. Your purpose will drive you in a righteous fight for freedom because you know who you are. My sponsor this week is CEI's Free the Economy podcast. Health, wealth, and happiness. Three goals that are essential to our lives, but attaining them is often impeded by heavy-handed government controls. That's why we must free the economy. Free the Economy is a weekly podcast produced by the Competitive Enterprise Institute that documents the opportunities for financial success and self-fulfillment in a world with less government control. How can smart urbanism improve our lives? Where is economic freedom under attack? How can we unleash the potential of small business owners and innovators? Each week, host Richard Morrison offers news you can use and fascinating conversations with experts in their fields to answer these questions and more. I think we can all agree, freedom is contagious. So check out Free the Economy wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org, Free the Economy. My guest today is Corey DeAngelis, a senior fellow at the American Federation for Children, the executive director at Educational Freedom Institute, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, a senior fellow at Reason Foundation, and a board member at Liberty Justice Center. Corey, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. All right. So as your many titles suggest, you are an advocate for, you call yourself an evangelist for school choice. I think this issue, despite having come to the fore of late, is still widely misunderstood, partly honestly so, and partly as a result of pretty well-funded lobbying efforts. So I wanted to have you on to talk me and my audience through this issue to answer some of the most common questions that I hear from the people on left and right, and that I've heard personally since Florida passed universal school choice in the last legislative session. So if I may, let's start right at the beginning. What is school choice? Yeah, I would say it's any policy that allows the money that's meant for educating the child. In the U.S., for example, we spend about $17,500 per student per year in the government-run schools, according to Census Bureau data from 2021. It's probably higher now. But any policy that allows that funding or a portion of that funding to follow the student to an option that is not their residentially assigned government-run school. So in the U.S., for listeners, if you uh, haven't realized this, and for the most part, you live in a particular residence and you have to go to a government-run institution that you're assigned to based on where you live. I mean, just imagine if you were assigned to your nearest grocery store or restaurant and you couldn't go anywhere else unless you picked up your bags and moved your house to another residence to be assigned to another government-run institution. That wouldn't make any sense. Or, Or if you wanted to go to a a non-government institution, you had to pay out of pocket for a, another grocery store or restaurant in addition to paying for the government service through the, the tax system. That gives the residentially assigned option a ton of monopoly power. If you were assigned to a restaurant or grocery store in this scenario, they would probably serve you expired food. They'd give you food poisoning and then just complain and say that you're not giving them enough money through your taxes. That's why uh, they're, they're poisoning your food. Uh, th- and we have the same issue with the government-run school system today. School choice policies, what I like to call 
funding students as opposed to systems allows that funding to follow the student. And you could take that money to another public school or government-run institution. You could take that funding to a charter school. It's a form of school choice. You could also take the funding to a private school to pay for tuition and fees. And in some states now, they're passing something called education savings accounts, which I would say is the gold standard of school choice policy. The funding goes into education savings account, and you could use it for private school tuition and fees or charter schools, but you could also use it for any other approved education expenditure, including homeschool curriculum, micro-schooling, private tutoring, even uh, educational therapies for students with special needs, which really opens up the marketplace for uh, the market for education. So is an ESA the same as a voucher? No. A voucher is the the basic concept that was first introduced. I mean, we actually had vouchers in, in the U.S. since the 1800s in states like Maine and Vermont. That's another side conversation. But the funding that would have followed you to the government-run school, with all these policies, you can still take it there. Uh, if you like your government school, if you like your public school, you can keep your public school, uh, unlike with your doctorates. But for real this time, you with any school choice program, the funding can still go there. But if not, with a voucher, you can take that funding or a portion of the funding that would have followed you to the government-run institution to pay for private school tuition and fees. And that's about it. It's You get a ticket to go to a private school. It's a voucher. With education savings accounts, it's like a health savings account. The funding goes into a savings account that is directed by parents you can also take it to pay for private school tuition and fees, which makes it similar to a voucher in that way. But you can also use it for any other approved education expenditure. So it's much more expansive, allows for more customization on the part of the parent. And the, as the word savings suggests, you can roll it over from year to year. If you have a, a savings account of 10000 and your tuition is only 8000 and you don't use the other 2000 you can roll it over. For the next year, which I think is important because of the fact that in, in general, tuition is higher at the higher uh, a high school level as opposed to the primary education level. And so if you can roll some of that funding over that you're not using for elementary school, you, you can save it for the higher tuitions that, that usually come along with a private high school. And then in some cases, you could also roll it over into to use for college or other career technical education for up to four years after graduating from high school. So that gives you an incentive to look for the lowest price in the market for education. So I like that part about the savings aspect. And uh, it also allows you to, to save it for post-secondary education if that's an eligible expense in your state. And what's a charter school? Charter school, uh, look, in every state they're defined as public schools, but it's a little more complicated than that in that they can be independently run, but they are publicly regulated by the state more so than a private school. They are generally funded uh, through taxpayer dollars. And the main difference between a charter public school and a traditional public school, which I like to call government school, is the traditional public schools are run by the government. Charter schools are not. And then two, you're usually assigned to government-run schools, whereas in the case with charter schools, you're not assigned to them. And in most cases, they have to accept all students by random lottery. So in, in a sense, they're more public than traditional public schools in that they have to take all students, whereas the government schools can discriminate on the basis of zip code. If you don't live in the right neighborhood, you, you can't get access to a lot of these government-run institutions. So charter schools are less likely to be unionized as well. So the teachers unions really don't like them. They provide competition to the to the government-run school system. And yeah, that's, that's basically a few of the main differences, but I would say they're a quasi-public private entity. Okay. So what I'm hearing is that you are not against public schools per se. What you are against is the monopoly. Is that correct? Right. And I, I repeat all the time, if you like your public school, you can keep your public school. And yeah, the problem is that we assign people to, to a, an institution that has a, a lot of monopoly power and the teachers unions fight over and over again to trap kids in those institutions, regardless of how well they're meeting the needs of individual students. In a lot of places you have these 
schools that are run by the teachers unions not doing a good job academically. And then in other cases, as we've seen in the past few years, a lot of the push for the school choice movement has really been about the values of the of the curriculum, the, the values of the parents aligning with the curriculum in the schools and how that curriculum is being taught by the employees in the system. And parents are seeing that or they're feeling it like at least that their kids are being brainwashed in, in the government institutions for 13 years without any exit options. So the school choice fight or, or argument in favor of it has really evolved over the past few years because the teachers unions overplayed their hand. They actually fought to keep the schools closed, the public schools, as long as possible to secure multiple multi-billion dollar ransom payments from the taxpayer. They received about $190 billion in so-called COVID relief since March of 2020. And you know, you have Randy Weingarten, the head of the American Federation of Teachers, uh, union president, basically lying in front of Congress, or at least gaslighting the American public, saying that they actually fought to keep the schools open since April of 2020. But if they were trying so hard to keep them open, why were they closed? And why were their private school counterparts that weren't unionized, that had true competition from the bottom up, families could vote with their feet? Why were the private schools open and the public schools, by and large, were closed, particularly in places that had stronger teachers unions, like in Chicago, where they were striking into 2022. I mean, two weeks to slow the spread turned into two years to flatten a generation. But the silver lining was that families got to see what the heck was going on in the classroom with all of this remote learning. And parents who thought their kids were in great schools, maybe they were in A-rated schools, maybe the kid was coming home with great scores on their report cards and standardized tests, Those same families who thought that their kids were in an okay learning environment started to see that there was another dimension of school quality that is arguably more important than anything that could be captured by a standardized test, which is whether the school's curriculum aligns with families' values. So yes, I I don't have anything per se against the government-run schools. It's more so the system itself and how people are assigned to institutions and forced to pay for them. And then if they want something else... They're basically stuck, particularly if they're from a low-income family and can't afford to pay twice, pay once through the tax system and pay again for tuition and fees out of pocket, particularly when we're spending over $17,000 per student in the government-run schools each year. And the private school tuition on average, I want to say, is only about twelve dollars or $13,000 per student per year in, in the private school sector. So how did COVID change things? Certainly, anecdotally, in my experience, COVID was the first time that I heard from people who broadly liked their schools, and the schools around me in North Florida are quite good, that they were interested in this school choice idea. Now, in poorer areas, in less privileged areas, I hear this all the time. People want to get out. They don't like the zip code lottery. But for the first time around me, people were angry and started to look for alternatives. Was that your experience as well, or is this overblown by conservative media? No, it's true. The uh, school closures that were induced by the teachers unions in the name of COVID really supercharged the success of the school choice movement. I mean, in the past two years alone, we've had nine states almost 20% of states going all in on school choice. And what I mean by that is passing universal school choice programs, allowing the funding to follow the student, and not just picking winners and losers. Because, I mean, for decades, we've had progress on the school choice movement, but it's really been incremental reform that has included certain groups, perhaps if you're from a lower-income family, or perhaps if you have a student with special needs, or maybe you're assigned to a school that is rated an F by the state a failing school, that, that uh, which doesn't include everybody. Now the push has been for universal school choice. Having nine states do so in the past two years, it's amazing. It, it, it is an, a huge momentum. And we should really thank Randy Weingarten, the teachers unions, for overplaying their hand and awakening a sleeping giant, which happens to be parents who want more of a say in their kids' education. Parents started to show up at the school board meetings because they saw that their the curriculum wasn't aligned with their values. Some people were upset about critical race theory, for example. There's now a huge fight about uh, gender ideology in the classroom. 
And it doesn't have a lot to do with standardized test scores. I mean, that's still part of the argument, particularly for families who are assigned to those objectively failing schools based on those metrics. But I think what really motivated parents to really push back is seeing that their kids were being indoctrinated or raised by other people who do not like them. That's going to be more likely to to motivate parents than anything else. And so we've seen them push it back to the school board meetings. And then when that happened, well, you had them get la- the parents get labeled as domestic terrorists. There was even a threat tag created by the FBI for parents showing up at school board meetings. And, you know, this was the Biden administration who colluded with the National School Boards Association, sending a letter to the Department of Justice to investigate parents at school board meetings for domestic terrorism. That just goes to show you that this whole fairy tale model of democratic accountability that they talk about with the public school system is all, all just a bunch of baloney because if you don't have true power in that relationship which parents have not had for a long time well the school boards and people in charge of the current system mostly leftists that have infiltrated the government school system for decades already if they don't have an incentive to listen to you they they're going to see you as a nuisance as a problem as a and they're going to try to silence you. And they, they have at these school board meetings. They've cut off parents' mics when they start to say things that they don't like. You have school districts passing policies or even states to keep secrets from parents when it comes to the, the gender of the student, for example. So this really woke up parents even more. I mean, the push to silence these parents has only emboldened them to fight back even harder because of that natural parental instinct. I mean, you don't want to bug a mama bear and a papa bear, and you've had different states and school districts poking the mama bears and papa bears, which has further fueled the push for educational freedom. And I will say the nine states that have gone all in have been states controlled by the Republican Party in both chambers and in the governor's office, with the first couple of states being Arizona and West Virginia last year. And then this year, we've just had a a ton of victories. We've had Oklahoma, Iowa, Utah, Arkansas, Florida, like you said, with House Bill 1, Indiana, Ohio has gone all in. And we're not even done this year yet. We have Texas special session that could come up pretty soon. And North Carolina has a Democrat governor who's a hypocrite, Roy Cooper. He sent his own kid to private school and then fights against it for everybody else. He even called a state of emergency because a school choice bill had enough co-sponsors in both chambers to override his hypocritical veto. In North Carolina, there was actually a Democrat, Trisha Cotham, switched parties, joined the Republican Party on the issue of parental rights. Since then, in Georgia, there was also a Democrat, Misha Maynard switch parties to the Republican Party on the issue of school choice and parental rights as well. But Roy Cooper called a state of emergency because parents might have educational freedom, all parents in North Carolina after after the budget goes through, because all Republicans signed on as co-sponsors. And you'd think they they would call a state of emergency for their failing test scores. I think the the nation's report card just came out before he issued the state of emergency with only 13% of students proficient in U.S. history. I mean, it's a total dumpster fire. And it just goes to show you that this was a state of emergency for his campaign uh, contributors, the teachers unions. It wasn't a state of emergency for kids. School choice is more of a state of serendipity for families who, who will now have more choice in their children's education. But to get back to your main question, yes, COVID supercharged the school choice momentum. Teacher unions overplayed their hand and they haven't been able to reverse course because they've been so drunk on power for so long. All right, let me ask you some questions that I've got from people on the left, but also from some people on the right, pushing back against this move towards school choice. So you mentioned parental rights, you mentioned indoctrination, and people really getting an in-depth understanding of what their kids were being taught because they were at home during COVID. Some people say, all right, if there's a problem with the curriculum, fix it, but fix it in the public schools. Don't separate everyone out. That As a country, we have to have some sort of common ground. We don't want to balkanize 
democracy requires a broadly unified curriculum and that if we allow people to go to whatever school they want to and if parents get to decide what's being taught and if this school has this book but that school doesn't have that book that we're going to end up as an atomized culture what do you think of that I mean, we already have that today. We have 90% of kids in government schools today. Uh, so we have a very politically polarized society today. Nine out of 10 kids are already attending government schools. So this, again, it's a fairy tale model of, of the public school system. We got to judge the policy based on its results, not based on its intentions. Look, I mean, the public schools are teaching concepts that a lot of people would say are politically divisive today, including critical race theory, pitting students against each other. What we have today when it comes to the school system isn't leading to a more cohesive society. Private education could lead to more cohesion, actually, if they're doing a better job with teaching students logic and to judge the merits of your opponent's arguments and to tolerate others' views. And so the, the net effect of choice is actually theoretically ambiguous. And if you look at the evidence on the subject, I mean, there's an older review from 2007. That's probably one of the first big ones that was done on this topic by Patrick Wolf, who was my professor at the University of Arkansas, where I did my PhD in education policy. He did a a meta-analysis or at least systematic review, pulling all these studies together on the topic of how school choice policies affect civic outcomes, including tolerance of others and civic participation. And most of the studies either had no effect or a positive effect on civic outcomes. There was only a couple that were negative, but the vast majority of the studies were positive. Patrick Wolf updated this, this systematic review in one of my co-edited books called School Choice Myths that's published by the Cato Institute, And he updated the studies there, similarly finding, again, overwhelmingly that the studies are null to positive on these civic outcomes. So the evidence is on the side of school choice. Also, as far as like we can't allow the argument, we can't allow some people to to choose private schools. I mean, that's already happening today. So, I mean, if you take if, if you extend the logic of this argument against school choice, they would actually be pushing to outlaw private schooling. And, and I would. Right. I, I think most people would think that would be an authoritarian rule that, I mean, that actually happened in Oregon in 1922. They outlawed private education. Thankfully, the, the Supreme Court called them on their BS in 1925 and Pierce versus Society of Sisters overturned that bigoted law and famously said, quote, the, the child is not the mere creature of the state. So look, parents are the primary decision makers. This is enshrined in our constitution and Kids don't belong to the government. And again, the the current system, the status quo is not producing those results. And I don't think it it can um, without competition. When they say just go and fix the public schools, well, school choice is one way to do that by providing bottom-up accountability. I mean, school choice empowers parents and changes the system at the same time without even requiring the parents to switch schools, just giving them more agency, giving them more power in the conversation, if the school districts know that parents can walk, take their money with them, maybe they'll actually listen to them instead of labeling them as domestic terrorists. So I think that's an important part of the conversation too, that it's about a shift in power dynamics, not necessarily a shift in your student. I mean, if it gets so bad that you do have to switch schools, then that option is on the table obviously as well, but it doesn't have to come to that We've had 29 studies on the topic of what happens to the public schools in response to private school choice competition. 26 of those 29 studies find statistically significant positive effects of private school choice programs on the outcomes in the public schools, too. So that leads it's a it's a rising tide that lifts all boats. So why is that? Because that's the second question that I had for you. This is what I always hear is that fine, there will be people who can send their kids to the local Catholic school or to a private school or to a charter school, but that this is going to leave the public schools in a terrible position and the lack of overheads will eventually become catastrophic and you are condemning some people who have less engaged parents or whose parents aren't willing to drive them many miles or what you will in the lurch. 
Yeah, I'll say one, that school choice is a way to increase parental involvement and engagement, just giving families an opportunity. There's actually been a study by Cornell researchers a few years ago, and they found that when school choice implement was implemented in certain areas, internet searches on different schools and their quality levels started to go up, which suggests gives some evidence to suggest that families become more involved. And just theoretically, I mean, if parents have the power to choose now, they're going to by definition, become involved in their kids' education. But if you just look at the evidence, 26 to 29 studies, finding positive effects of school choice competition on the public schools, you can find that at the EdChoice 123s, they, they list all of the studies that exist on the topic. They don't cherry pick or lemon pick the studies. You'll see a lot of other people who will, will either just fear monger or won't, they won't cite studies on this particular topic because it doesn't really exist. It's overwhelmingly positive. Even opponents of school choice, if they're at universities and they have any ounce of intellectual integrity, they'll admit that the competitive effects of school choice are actually slightly positive, at least slightly positive. If you look at a peer-reviewed meta-analysis in a journal called Educational Policy in 2019 with an author by the last name of Jabbar, J-A-B-B-A-R, uh, if you just type in her name, competitive effects, educational policy, you'll find the, the peer-reviewed study. Again, finding if you pull all of the effect sizes together from this body of literature, it's an overall slightly positive impact on the public schools. If you look at how these programs actually work, I, I mentioned earlier, it's about $17,500 per student per year in the government schools, at least. That data is from 2021. It's probably a lot higher now. But these programs are typically passed at the state level. And uh, what that means is it's typically the state funding that follows the child. But government schools are funded through local sources, state sources, and federal sources in the U.S. And the state share tends to be about half of the total. So let's say it's about eight or $9,000 that's following the student. The public schools get to keep the local and federal funding so on a per-student basis, they end up with more money per child than they would have otherwise had. Just imagine if you stopped shopping at Walmart and you wanted to go to Trader Joe's or Safeway, and Walmart got to keep half of your grocery funding each week. I don't think that would make a lot of sense, but it would be a great deal for Walmart. Defenders of the status quo will say, oh, well, you know, we have fixed costs, so we have to keep all the money and, right. you know, we have to maintain the buildings, we have to keep the lights on. Well, you know what? Walmart has lights they need to keep on. They have buildings they may need to maintain. And by the way, you get to keep thousands of dollars after students leave. You have plenty of funding to cover these so-called fixed costs that are, as economists know, all variable in the long run. All costs will vary with the unit of production in the long run. That's why Walmart doesn't get to keep your funding after you leave to another grocery store. They just, they got to figure it out through cutting costs whenever wherever they can, but it's worse than that for the public schools or, or better in, in their case that they, that they have ton, a tons of money to be able to deal with, with the adjustment or the, so they're able to adjust to the students and families voting with their feet. This argument that they make is really an admission of failure. A lot of these school choice opponents will will act like the sky is falling and say, oh, if we have any choice, even when you try to propose a program that's targeted to low-income families or very specific groups, they'll say that this is going to dismantle public education as we know it. We had one legislator, I think in Alabama a couple of years ago, say that it was going to decapitate public education. They just, they turn up the volume to 11 on their fear mongering because it's more about the power of the teachers unions than the students that are in the schools because they don't mention the positive evidence, of course, because it goes against their, their argument, which they really just care about keeping the gravy train going for the teachers unions. I mean, Randy Weingarten's union, AFT, in 2022, about 99.97% of their campaign contributions went to Democrats in 2022. And this has been consistent over time. If you look at the Open Secrets websites, consistently over 97% of their campaign contributions have gone to Democrats for the past three decades at least. And that really starts to th make things make a little more sense for the average average person asking why Democrats would vote against school choice. It has everything to do with power dynamics, nothing to do with logic. 
Uh, so let's just lay that look- out. You, you say that you want to make that clear. Just just make it clear for me. So the argument here is that you have a government school monopoly and parents can't choose to go somewhere else. And so if those schools aren't performing and the parents are unhappy and you don't allow competition, then as a teacher's union, you can say, well, the only solution that we have is to get paid more and to take exactly. more money out, right? And, and it's not even getting paid more. I mean, they just they, they just throw more money into the system. It leads to more administrative bloat. And a lot of times it doesn't even make its way to the teacher. So the teachers unions, a lot of people say this is like employees versus the kids, the students. It's it, I think it's even worse than that. It's, it's union bosses versus the kids and their parents because – in the U.S., since 1970, according to the National Center for Education Statistics data, we've increased per-student education expenditures after adjusting for inflation by 152%. But teacher salaries in real terms have only increased by about 8%. But they have put a lot more uh, administrators and support staff into the system, which, you know, if you're a, a union boss, it's in your best interest, like Randy Weingarten, who makes over $500,000 a year, to push for more people in the system because that means a more powerful voting block. You have more people to, to vote for the your leftist policies and leftist politicians. And then you also have more dues-paying members. If that money just went to salaries, you'll still get the same amount of union revenues. But if you put more people into the buildings, that becomes – you start to add more dues-paying members, increasing overall union revenues, which ultimately a lot of that funding – makes its way back into the Democratic campaign coffers. It's a money laundering scheme for the Democratic Party, and a lot of people haven't figured this out yet. Uh, but school choice is a is a nonpartisan issue. If you look at the polling, at least, uh, the latest Real Clear Opinion Research polling uh, from June of 2023 has found that 71% of Americans support the concept of school choice, with supermajority support among Republicans, Democrats, and independents. That number has increased overall about seven points since April of 2020. And other polls have shown this too, that there's been a major shift since uh, right around the pandemic period to now on uh, parents being more supportive of school choice. In Texas, where I live, they actually put school choice as a ballot proposition on the Republican primaries last year, March of 2022. And they found 88% of Texas Republican primary voters supporting school choice up nine points since they last put it on the ballot with 79% support in, in uh, 2018. Uh, but then if you look at the, the logic of the arguments for school choice, you can make lefty arguments for school choice. You can make right-leaning arguments for school choice, whether it has to do with increasing equality of opportunity, uh, increasing competition, uh, just having more individual liberty and being able to choose, thinking about how the lowest income uh, students are stuck in the failing government schools that they're assigned to. This would give them more opportunities. If you think about the left's definition of systemic racism, that applies to the public school system where we have disproportionate outcomes by race in the government school system and and these residentially assigned institutions that, that mirror uh, the redlining of the 1930s in the U.S., I mean, you can make all sorts of these arguments from both so- uh, sides of the political spectrum for school choice. It just so happens, though, when you get past the polls and you get to the elected officials, that it's the Republicans voting in favor and it's the Democrat politicians voting against. And that doesn't make sense when you look at the polls. It doesn't make sense when you think about what other things Democrat politicians support. Think about it with pre-K. We have the funding following the student with the Head Start program, for example, and other state-funded pre-K programs, where you can pick a private, even religious pre-K, and and you're not assigned to a pre-K. You can can take that funding to the pre-K that is best for your child. When you think about after you graduate high school, we have Pell Grants. In Texas, we have something called the Texas Equalization Grant. These higher education scholarship programs some of them for low-income kids, some of them open for, for more expansive, more, more groups of, of students. And you can take that funding to a public university, a community college. You can take it to a private, even religious university. So that the funding 
follows the decision of the student for higher ed, for pre-K, which raises the question, well, why would Democrats only oppose it for those in-between years of K-12 education? And the answer is simple if you've been in this long enough, which is that there's a difference in power dynamics, that choice is the norm for higher education and pre-K, but choice threatens an entrenched special interest, the teachers and administrators unions, only when it comes to the in-between years of K-12 education. So they fight as hard as possible against any change to the status quo, and they basically own the Democratic Party. You look at food stamps, Medicaid vouchers, Section 8 housing vouchers, all of these other programs in, in just about every other industry, the funding can follow the decision of the family. You don't have to take your food stamp or SNAP dollars to a residentially assigned government-run grocery store where you go to get government cheese. I think whether you're on the left or the right, you'd be against that, where if we're going to spend the money, even if you oppose food stamps in general and how much we spend on them, I think we can all agree that if we're going to spend the money, it should go to people and those people should be able to choose private providers of groceries, especially when they have more on-the-ground knowledge about what their individual families need. That's not what we have with the government school system. This has everything to do with a difference in power dynamics. And once you start to think about it in terms of power as opposed to logic, it starts to make a lot more sense. All right. Last question that I've got. You made the case for funding individuals irrespective of where they go to school. What do you think of a system like Florida's, though, where in theory at least there's no income cutoff, and practically there doesn't seem to be much of one? I mean, suppose you have a parent who sends their kid to a private school and pays for it. If there's no income cutoff to school choice, that parent suddenly gets funding from the state for a school place for which they were previously paying and thereby effectively gets a big tax cut or at least has more money in their pocket. Given limited resources, is that the best alteration to the status quo or should we have a cutoff somewhere that says, you know, if you're wealthy, you, you aren't really covered by this? I think it should be available to everyone. We don't restrict access to government schools based on income. We shouldn't restrict access to school choice programs based on in income either. If anything, higher income families are paying more into the system itself. So if anything, they should at least receive the average amount back. They should have never had to pay twice. They should have never had to pay once for the public schools they aren't using, and then again for the private schools uh, out of pocket. You, that, that, we, are, we have a guaranteed publicly funded education in every state, according to the, each of the state's constitutions, for every single family. We don't pick winners and losers under the constitution in each state. So we, we shouldn't pick winners and losers when it comes to school choice programs. Another thing on that point is when you make a program universal – you increase the amount of beneficiaries of that program and you, you increase the likelihood of, of the program's success in the long run and even initial passage. I mean, the, the reason that I think the school choice movement has kind of done this incremental reform in the past where they only you know have certain groups of students eligible is because they thought they were going to get some Democrats on board because you know they could show it's an equalizer. Uh, but that did, that strategy didn't really work, and the fear mongering was always up to volume eleven, no matter how big or how small the proposal was. So when we buy into the fear mongering and try to quell those concerns by proposing uh, targeted programs, we deflate our side, our our constituent, our, our um, coalition, those those parents pushing back at the school board meetings who might be in great public schools according to the state they're all of a sudden not going to fight for it as much anymore if they see that they're not eligible. So you want to include as many beneficiaries of the program as possible, one for initial passage, because look, if, if again, if you target the program, you're going to do nothing to shut up the teachers unions, but you're going to shut up your own side. And you want your side to have a powerful voice as possible to get it passed. Uh, whether we like it or not, the, the success of a program a lot has a lot to do with the groups who are benefiting from it. 
So is there a state that, in your estimation, has got it the most right? I mean, is, there a, is there a gold standard model that you would implement everywhere if you could, or that if there were a, a new state that said we want to do school choice, you would say, great, look at this place? Yeah, I, I would say Arizona. So they've been doing this for a while. They had, they had education savings accounts in Arizona. They were the first state to do it uh, over a decade ago. And, you know, last year before they had the expansion, they had about 10 or 11,000 students using the program. They opened the floodgates in 2022 uh, with every Republican showing up, voting for their party platform issue of school choice and expanding it from 20% of the population being eligible to 100%. Again, no picking winners and losers, all families eligible, no caps on the number of students who can participate. And it's an education savings account where you don't have to only use it on a pr- on private school tuition and fees. They now have about 60,000 students signed up for that program, about a six-fold increase in less than a year. So it's a huge shift. P- parents really want this. And they allow for families to easily go online and apply. This is obviously widely popular with, with the parents of Arizona, uh, just seeing the sheer numbers of them signing up for the program. But yes, it being an ESA is, is gold standard. It being open to everyone is gold standard. And they also include anti-regulation language in their original statute as well, which says that the if you accept the funding as a private school or other entity, you do not become an arm of the state. You do not become a government entity and that the government cannot control your creed, curriculum, admissions processes, and you can't have any requirements of standardized testing either. In, in Arizona. Of course, parents can demand that if, if they want to see that proof of concept and they think that standardized tests are a valuable metric of success, parents can still choose schools that, that have those in place. And a lot of private schools, I'd say most of them, if not all, if maybe even all of them uh, in Arizona already have some form of testing available uh, each year. But I think that's an important element too that we didn't even touch on yet during the conversation is that you want to make sure you reduce the likelihood of government overreach in the private sector as much as possible. And I think Arizona has set it up in the best way to avoid that as well. Is this one of those policy areas where once you've done it, it's really hard to go back? I'm thinking about state level tax cuts. They tend not to be repealed. I'm thinking about constitutional carry. There's 26 states mm-hmm. now with constitutional carry. Not a single one of those states has ever he- held even a hearing about it. Is this a little like that? Once you put it in, you might get some complaining from vested interests. But yeah, I mean, has any state ever gone backwards on this? I mean, yes, it has happened. But the general trend has been expansion. And you know, once you give par- parents power and choice, they fight really hard to keep it. You're basically uh, creating a new special interest group and in some cases a single issue voter on the issue of school choice. And one example of this is in Florida. In 2018, DeSantis barely won the election for governor. And in the Wall Street Journal, an op-ed actually made the case that, quote, school choice moms tipped the governor's race in Florida in 2018. And the story goes that his opponent, Andrew Gillum, was a black Democrat who was against the state's existing private school choice program that was serving over 100,000 students disproportionately from low-income families. I think the average household income at the time was about $30,000 per household of students using that program. And the students were disproportionately non-white students as well. Well, DeSantis, according to exit polling, overperformed with uh, minority women. I believe it was black women came out in support of DeSantis. And basically, this was the the, the group of school choice moms who came out in favor of him, uh, who would have otherwise statistically been more likely to vote for the Democrat candidate, voted for DeSantis, giving him enough votes to, to get across the finish line. Fast forward to 2022, DeSantis wins by about 20 points. And over the same period, the Florida legislature expanded to GOP supermajority support in both chambers. West Virginia has also increased to supermajorities in each chamber after expanding school choice to all families as well. So I think this is like the only thing that Republicans can 
you know, basically give away. Democrats give things away all the time because they want to spend more money and, and, and tax you to death. But Republicans have this kind of special policy when it comes to school choice where you're, you're giving something away in a sense because you're redirecting funding from government buildings to, to parents, but you're also reducing government size because it's, it's almost always a fraction of what would have been spent already in the government schools. So it's a conservative idea. It's on the Republican Party platform, but it's also something where you can create a new voting block on the issue of school choice. And it can really be a political winner if you look at things like the uh, Virginia election with Glenn Youngkin beating Terry McAuliffe after Terry, you know, sided with the unions, had Randy Stumpen for him and said that he shouldn't, he doesn't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Glenn Youngkin ran on the issue of parental rights and won with education voters by six points. That never happens for Republicans until recently. And that education was the number two issue in that election in Virginia. So that's a blueprint for success for Republicans. If they're smart, they'll embrace the school choice wave. And uh, a lot of red states are embracing that wave. And I mean, you, you think about it, it's, it seems like we've reached escape velocity, having a lot of incremental reform, but but not really breaking, breaking through until the past couple of years, having nine states going all in. It's the red states right now. And I think it's going to c- continue to be more red state government school monopoly dominoes falling because they're engaging in friendly competition to empower more parents. But the blue states might have to come along sometime soon unless they want to become red states if the Democrats <laughs> lose enough on the issue. But, I mean, we've seen some 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 swaying going on, at least with Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania. He put school choice into his education platform right before the midterm elections, after he started getting hit by Mastriano for being a hypocrite on school choice because Josh Shapiro, governor of Pennsylvania, went to private school, sent his kids to private school. It's a political disaster to be called a hypocrite over and over again. And uh, he was able to dodge that by supporting a limited form of private school choice in Pennsylvania right before the election. Even up till now, I mean, he went on Fox News a month ago supporting school choice as a Democrat. He's ultimately saying he's not going to to sign a bill that has school choice. Even so, he's kind of flip flopped. It seems like he's trying to have his cake and eat it too by saying, "Oh, I support it," but oh, the, the the House couldn't get it done. It was the Democrats in the House that blocked it, not me. And you know, but the, the obvious explanation is usually the most likely. And it looks like he's just he just lied about uh, his campaign promise and. He's basically promising to veto his own campaign promise now. But which, the fact that he has to promise news. it is but telling. Yes, the, yes, and so people are like, yeah, he lied. And when I wrote about this in the Wall Street Journal, when, when he switched his education platform on his website, I called it out, put it in the journal, and a lot of conservatives were, were pissed at me because they said, why are, you, why are you supporting Josh Shapiro? He's just lying. And you know that wasn't my point. I, the, my response was that he feels compelled to support parental rights or at least pretend to do so right now. That is good news for the school choice movement and parents in the long run, because look, it's, it's, it's detrimental to life. Uh, voters don't like liars. They don't like hypocrites either. And um, so this, this will help Republicans in the, in the end if Democrats want to keep lying on this issue. But I think the more likely scenario is that we reach bipartisanship in the long run through hyper-partisanship in the short run. But it's going to require the GOP to lean into parental rights as a political winner so that it becomes political suicide for Democrats to oppose it. At some point, it's not just going to be red states supporting school choice. We're going to have some Democrat defectors. I'm not sure how long that's going to take, but if this is how the power dynamics are shifting and shaking out right now. The, the Democrats are going to have to start listening to the kids' union, the parents' not just the teachers unions, but that's only going to happen if Republicans press the issue. I usually finish these interviews by asking if you're optimistic or pessimistic, but I think I already know your answer. Right. I'm optimistic. The The teachers unions uh, overplayed their hand and there's not a damn thing that they can do to stop the school choice wave in the long run. They can try to slow it down uh, right now in blue states in particular that are controlled by teachers unions, but the, the dominoes are falling and the left is currently freaking out because they're losing control over the minds of other people's children. 
and I say good. And, and part of it is because the uh, families don't want their kids to be indoctrinated with, with uh, ideologies that they don't align with. And because school choice has become a political winner. There wasn't a red wave, you know, last year, like a lot of people were hoping for. There wasn't a blue wave, but there was a school choice wave. 76% of the candidates supported by my organization, the American Federation for Children, won their races in 2022. And we didn't just plan the easy ones. We targeted 69 incumbents in state legislatures, the hardest thing to do in politics, and we took out 40 of them. And the message is now becoming pretty clear that you need to support parental rights and education as a politician unless you want to lose your job. And you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, in the New Yorker magazine, there was a liberal author that lamented, in, and this is a, d- a direct quote, that, quote, education freedom candidates fared depressingly well in the midterms. Well, you know what? They can just go cry harder because although that's bad news for socialists who want to control other people's kids, this is fantastic news for parents who just want more of a say in their own kids' education. So yes, I'm very optimistic. It's going to continue with this momentum of success for for education freedom. All right, Corey DeAngelis, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much, Charles. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Corey DeAngelis. Thank you to Becky Pringle for keeping the mission clear, for burning with the will of fire, and for so steadfastly refusing to get damp. Thank you to you for listening, and we'll see you next week.